Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer here at the RSA, and it's my uh, very great pleasure to welcome you to the latest event in our Bridges to the Future series, where we're exploring ideas to shape change in the post-COVID world. And um, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ted Howard. Um, he's co-founder and president of Democracy Collaborative and pioneer of community wealth building movement that's been steadily growing in influence in the US, UK, Europe, and beyond in recent years. Um, when we started putting together ideas for this Bridges to the Future series, uh, Ted was one of the very first guests on our go-to invite list. And he's been described as a world-changing visionary and a soft-spoken hero. Um, his book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, written with Marjorie Kelly, is essential reading. Um, he and his team are at the forefront of a truly inspirational movement um, for change that is fighting for economic and social transformation from the ground up. And he's demonstrating in Cleveland and many other places besides how it can happen in practice. And um, this is a fight that's never been more important. And in the wake of an unprecedented global public health emergency, um, and what is now a global response to racial injustice following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a police officer, we now find ourselves at a historic crossroads. And we haven't even yet mentioned deeply embedded inequality and the climate emergency. The actions we take in the months ahead will have lasting consequences for our societies for decades to come. For many people, local community support and solidarity has been key to making it through these past few months of health crisis. So the question we want to address today is, can we now put building community power at the very heart of the economic recovery effort? Ted, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, there are so many interests and concerns that the RSA and Democracy Collaborative share, and there's, there's a stack of issues we're gonna try and fit into this um, 30 minutes or so. But I did wanna start off um, our conversation with a, a reflection on the um, George Floyd killing uh, and its aftermath. Um, it's obviously sent shockwaves through American society and around the world in the past weeks, and it's probably a profound reflection here in the UK um, and, and a reckoning with difficult issues from our past and, and, of course, vital issues of the present and the past and the present roll into one when discussing issues of racial injustice. Um, a good friend of mine who's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, Simon Mannering, described the US as having sort of weaponized the rule of law and criminalized poverty, and especially black poverty, of course. I mean, how does this resonate with you? And can you give us a sort of sense of the moment, how it's being experienced in the US, and your sense of whether this time could be different? Well, thank you, Anthony. Um, first of all, I look forward um, one day, hopefully later this year, when we might sit down together in person, as we have in the past. But today I'm uh, locked down in my apartment in Cleveland, Ohio, in the Midwest of the United States. Um, you know, the murder of George Floyd, and I think, although of course there will be a jury trial and there needs to be a presumption of innocence, but we all saw what took place, so I have no uh, problem actually saying the murder of George Floyd. Um, it did shock this nation and it continues to shock. Um, you know, I have two responses to your question, I guess. One is, um, uh, you know, I, in a sense a political um, uh, or systemic analysis. And that's that, that this murder, 
which happened at one point in time, is part and parcel of something that's been going on in this country for 401 years since the first African slaves were brought to America in 1619. Um, you know, this country, while, while in the United States we like to pride ourselves that our, the fact that we have the largest economy in the world, um, that that was really built on American genius and entrepreneurship and the heroic efforts of great titans of industry, the, the Rockefellers and the Fords and uh, now the Gates and the Bezos. Um, but the reality is that this economy uh, has been built historically, uh, first on uh, an entire continent of land that was stolen from indigenous people who lived here, 95% of whom were ultimately wiped out both through military action and through disease and one of the great genocides in history, and on the labor of black Americans. And that didn't stop in the Civil War. It continued through what we call the Reconstruction Era, and it continues right to this day. Um, even some of our most progressive advances in the United States, like the GI Bill after World War II, or much of the New Deal, explicitly excluded black Americans, even though they were quite progressive. So George Floyd represents, in a sense, an individual tragedy, certainly for the Floyd family. Um, he represents a continuing escalation of death of particularly black men um, by what I think can only be called appropriately a police state and a system of incarceration and injustice. Um, but he also represents this, this legacy of 401 years, his death does. And, it has really, for Americans, ripped the veneer off our society so that people are really confronting things in a way they never have. I mean, we are having, um, my goodness, our National Football League, uh, which is one of the most <laughs> conservative institutions in America in sports, is taking a stand that Black Lives Matter. I mean, who would have thought that? Uh, today, as I'm talking to you on television this morning, the United States Senate is debating to change the names of military forts all over America that were named after uh, Confederate generals. No one would ever have thought that. So there's a lot of symbolic change and hopefully meaningful change. But let me also say very personally what this is about. I lived in a neighborhood here in Cleveland um, until very recently. I lived downtown now, a neighborhood called Glenville, which is a a black neighborhood, 98% of my fellow neighbors were black, or as we call black people in America, African-American. The average life expectancy for a man in the neighborhood of Glenville and similar neighborhoods is 64 years. Uh, eight miles due east in a suburb of Cleveland, which is overwhelmingly white, the average life expectancy for a man is 88 years. 24 years of life um, between a black man and a white man really linked to poverty um, and really institutionalized racism. Finally, I spoke to a very good friend who's with a major American foundation just this week, um, an African-American woman, a, a very uh, powerful black philanthropist. And I asked her, I said, Jean, what has been the impact of the pandemic on your family? Um, and she said, well, I haven't lost anyone in my direct family, but in my extended family, uh, more than 30 people have died of the virus. 
That's extraordinary. And that's another symbol of what's taking place in America as this pandemic uh, just devastates our black communities. So so I, I think it's important to not see this as an anomaly. The president of the United States likes to talk about a few bad apples. This is part of a systemic attempt to keep a very large segment of our society down. And I pray and I think perhaps a different day is coming when you look at who's marching in the streets and what the demands are. I guess I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, I, I think it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the fact that your history is our history too. Um, and you know the, the situations that you're describing, the historical crimes are our crimes too. Uh, you know, the slave trade was initiated, propagated, developed um, by the British um, and, and others. And we tend to gloss over the past as well. We talk far more about our role in the abolition of the slave trade than our role in creating it. Um, and I think we all, uh, as deeply historically unequal and unjust societies, need to remember all the threads of that past because they do lead to the present day. Um, and while we have withdrawn from the situation or were withdrawn from the situation, progressively from the late 18th century or so on, um, the residue of what we planted uh, remained. Um, and we need to deeply reflect upon that. And um, I, I think that the, the pulling down of the, uh, the statue of a slave trader in Bristol um, on Sunday was a, a reminder of our connection to the slave trade story as, as well as what has happened since um, and a continuation into the present. Now, of course, um, there is a linkage between the operation of the economy, the state, society uh, and prejudice. And as you were talking I, I spent a bit of time in Chicago just over a decade or so ago at the, the time of the um, 2008 presidential election. I went to a community called Orgel Gardens where Barack Obama had been a community organiser. And the most remarkable, I spoke to a lot of people there who were very generous um, with, their, with their time. And the, the community had been established as, as a community for um, African-American veterans. Um, in the sort of 60s and 70s. And it was a, it was a very well-constructed community, but of course it was segregated. They had good jobs um, in the Ford factory and in the steel mills um, from, from recollection. And of course, then when the industrial recession hit in the late 70s and 80s, most of those jobs went, right? And then the community just, just sank. Um, and it was a place where police would only rarely venture um, and, um, you know, a, a state of sort of desperation had taken over. But what it brought home to me was this intersection between race and economic life and how segregation plays into that. So these shocks, whether they're economic or health or, you know, the coming climate shocks um, will hit different communities unevenly. And I wonder whether you could say something from your own perspective about the, the interlocking nature of, of, of culture, prejudice, uh, economy, and even what you described in the latest report, you and your colleagues, as a racialized police state? Well, 
I think we as Americans would like to <laughs> pretend um, that the kinds of problems of, um, we see in the black community are either problems of their own doing or, um, you know, simply a result of some failed policies and they can be corrected. And the reality is I think we need to look at the very, we have a systemic crisis in the United States and every, you know, the first law of ecology, of course, is the, that everything is connected to everything else. And we simply can't say, well, you know, there's a climate crisis and there's an inequality crisis and it is all bound together. And I, I am in my organization, the Democracy Collaborative, we really believe it is a systemic issue. It's not simply a matter of politics or policy or who's elected president. Obviously, I prefer a different kind of president than the one we have. But, there, but you mentioned Barack Obama. Um, despite his efforts, wealth inequality in the United States and incarceration in the United States went up under his administration. Now they're going up in, under Trump's administration on steroids, but there's something about the system that drives these kinds of outcomes. And our view is if we want a different kind of outcome, if we want to uh, uh, shrink the, the racial wealth gap in America, which is just extraordinary, the, the, the assets of a typical white, house, white household compared to a black household are just extraordinary and orders of magnitude. If we want to create a system of health for all, if we really want to make meaningful change in economic development and so forth, um, we can't tinker around the edges. Um, and if we want to address racism in America, one, we have to acknowledge it, and two, we have to be willing to take steps for what we would call reparative justice. It's not enough to say, God, things were bad, now we're gonna do better, let's go forward. People are starting way down on their ladder in the black community as we rebuild our economy. So I think the challenge for all of us um, is can we imagine constructing a new political economy of institutions, policies, structures, uh, 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 patterns of behavior that are deemed appropriate that can reliably produce different outcomes. So if we don't want a racialized uh, justice system, if we don't want growing wealth inequality and concentration wealth, we need a, a systemic design conversation to rebuild the very basis of, uh, certainly of the United States. And just very briefly, as a just quick follow-up on, 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 on this one, Ted, it seems to me that the, the racialized police state, as you describe it, is one of the possible logical consequences of such deep inequalities of, of wealth and entrenched poverty and um, inequality. It's, it, it's an attempt to cack-handedly measure the possible consequences of those, those um, inequalities and to try and create a, um, a sort of swell of political support and you know, divide people often who are in very similar situations but of different races um, along political lines um, in a sort of tough law and order in inverted commas sort of fashion. Did, do you see it quite that way? I see it absolutely that way. I, I believe that 
one, one of the greatest impediments we have to progressive change in the United States is that, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial, I just want to sort of describe you know, the reality that there is a certain power structure uh, in the United States, a political and indeed a corporate power structure, that is able to thrive by finding ways to divide us so that, uh, you know, we white people believe the problem is actually black people, for instance. Um, when in fact, they have many similar interests, but there's been this social construct of race that pits them apart from one another. Um, uh, and, and in at least the United States context, if we cannot forge a movement that involves at least the three major racial groupings in the United States, black Americans, brown Americans, and white Americans, and I don't mean to discount Asian Americans and indigenous people, all of that united together, even though we have cultural differences, you know, working in an organization that's founded by a white guy like me, has a certain different tenor to it than an organization that would be founded by a black person. And we also need to grapple with that. And by the way, internally at the Democracy Collaborative, we are, because we have a very diverse staff. And how do we make this a, a real, this is an organization of all of us culturally. But if we can't build that multiracial movement, we are going to keep being pitted at one another and blaming the other. And that's a great challenge right now. Yeah. And, and in fact, at one point in, in owning our future, you, you say white working class people who have benefited from the currency of whiteness will continue to forfeit the opportunity to be in coalition with communities of color and will themselves continue to suffer um, as, a, as a consequence. And when I read that, I was, I was kind of reminded of you know, that there was a sort of spate of um, uh, sort of narrative nonfiction books recently, particularly in the, in the US environment, you know, sort of strangers in their own land. I was particularly remem reminded of Amy Goldstein's book, um, Janesville, which, which I think is for Mary's based in, in Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, I, I, you're reminded of these sort of the, the, these racialized divides and, and a failure to form... Um, you know, Obama, for all, his, for all his faults, had a capability to reach across some of those divides, which few others on the progressive sides of politics have, have managed in, 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 in recent decades. And interestingly, I, I looked into the um, Rock County where Janesville is based at one point. I was just intrigued. And there's a 7% swing from uh, Obama to Trump from 2012 to 2016. Of course, this is a community where the General Motors factory had closed down, um, you know, white working class, they've been used to sort of $20 an hour jobs with benefits and were suddenly in a precarious uh, labor market or no labor market as the, 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 the case may be. And I just wonder how you see those coalitions being stitched back together again um, in a way that could drive a different sort of narrative and political conversation? Well, of course, this is a great uh, uh, historic challenge that we face. Um, my view is that we, and I'll put myself on the progressive side of things, um, that those with a progressive vision need to be able to project something that is not merely rhetorical or ideological, 
but something that people of all backgrounds can find themselves in, that it would be, in a sense, in an American language, you know, it's not imported from some Marxist state, not that any of those really exist anymore, um, but it's just the kind of the common sense of the matter. Um, and I think that our, uh, centering that vision in community becomes really important. Our, our notion in America of community uh, has been so eroded in this globalized, financialized market. Um, you know, so little, few of our businesses locally owned and so forth that, that I think there's something, a, a kind of yearning in America for community. And it's certainly in the black and brown population, but also in the white population and among many Trump voters. And I know many because I live in Ohio and Ohio also voted twice very substantially for Obama for president and then voted very substantially for Trump. And so there needs to be an appeal uh, to people. Uh, it needs to be based on self-interest, but shared self-interest a realistic vision of the possible and centered in community. That's that's about the best I can give you, Anthony. No, that's pretty good. And and I think I think there's there's definitely something in this. I mean, we uh, had a, a, a general election here in the UK um, back in December, and very traditional um, constituencies that have previously voted for uh, the Labour Party. You know, not just at the last election, but for generations some of them started to fall into the hands of the Conservative Party. Of course, we've got a complex situation here with the, with the Brexit situation. But there's also a sense that, um, that some of the, there's a, there was a language of levelling up that was deployed by the Conservatives. And I get a sense that some of that resonated. At the very least, gave permission for people in some of those constituencies to take their chances with the Conservative Party, probably um, for the first time um, ever. So I think you're right about the, the yearning and a sense that, that the sort of the economic and geographical distribution actually um, is grotesquely unfair. And then you layer on, on, on that um, a, a sense of belonging to particular groups and perspectives and whether you're getting a, a fair deal or not. And I want to come on to the ideas in, in you know, the Democracy Collaborative have been very effectively putting out there in ju just a moment. But I just wanted, just before we leave this part of the conversation, just to ask you around the notion of reparations and whether that can be done in a way that can sustain this coalition, or do you think there's a risk it might quickly become a, an impediment? Um, you know, it's the, the idea of reparations three years ago was seen in the U.S. so outside the pale. Um, you know, uh, if you talked reparations, if you weren't talking to a black audience that was highly involved in the conversation, if you talked in general, uh, people would just roll their eyes at best. Uh, I, it seems to me that that idea of reparations or the way we put it is, is a slightly different reparative justice, that that approach is one that can actually, uh, it's certainly been embraced by the Democratic Party, and it's been embraced to some extent by uh, uh, the presumptive nominee, uh, Joe Biden, uh, and by a number of the women who he's looking at uh, for vice presidential candidate, running mate, uh, including Elizabeth Warren, have very squarely stood for 
reparations. I think it's also important um, uh, to uh, educate people, if you will, in the American public that in fact, reparations of different kind are being paid all the time in our society, not necessarily around race, but around class interests and other things. So this is not an idea. It's like public ownership. You know, people think that's not an American idea. Well, in fact, there's public ownership all over the United States. And some of the widest spread and growing is in conservative southern states, what we call red states, because uh, we flip from you. Uh, our red is conservative. Uh, where Republican mayors in small towns are starting municipal companies to run broadband and television networks because they have to. So just as we have to educate people that, in fact, public ownership is kind of, as the saying goes, as American as apple pie, the idea of reparations are being done everywhere, and we need to educate people about that. Um, but I think we need to fight that fight and not skirt it, because you cannot build a truly democratic economy, which is our goal for a, a new systemic change beyond capitalism as we know it. You cannot do that without repairing the inequities of the past that have so disadvantaged people from now to be able to move forward. Right, well, let's talk about some of those, those ways in which um, you're, you're looking for um, to, to move the American political economy uh, uh, forward because they have residents here in the UK as well. And, you know, I, there are a whole host of places in the UK that have been um, influenced by your ideas and practice, Preston, North Ayrshire, so on and so forth. And, and one thing I've, I, I think I've learned from your organisation um, and what you've done over a long period of time is that redistribution is, is not enough you actually have to construct the institutions and flow money through them in a particular way that enables the generation of democratic wealth, community wealth, um, however um, you wish, wish to describe it. Um, and this is an important insight, um, of, of, of course, because it answers some of your questions around how you can build up something, an authentic and genuine sense of community. So it's not just an identity, it's something deeper and even more meaningful. Um, than identity in many, many respects. So do you want to just sort of talk about a few of the ideas that you've been putting out there in your sort of five-point plan for how we might go about this in response to, you know, the variety of crises systemically that interconnected that we're facing? Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. Um, first, I, I think you're right that certainly one of our insights, and we're not the only one that have had it, but if you look at the American situation, um, we have a, a, a economy that generates massive inequalities economically and therefore socially and so forth. And we try to handle that after the inequality has been generated through some taxation policy, some regulation. And most of that's been eroded as the state's captured, but we try to do it after the fact. And what we believe is a fundamental systemic change that would really change ownership patterns and outcomes is during the productive process itself uh, uh, through employee ownership or community ownership and so forth, um, you, you capture the economic value at the front end rather than trying to regulate the inequities that result. Um, you know, our frame that we use is what we call community wealth building. As you said, it's been 
taken up in many places in the UK through a number of councils that are usually dominated by Labour in England, but also uh, in Wales, Scotland, there are whole new approaches to community wealth building. It's really a, 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 an economic development strategy to, to develop local assets and institutions in ways that ensure wealth is kept local. Uh, we've created, uh, in response to the COVID crisis, a five-part plan that we call, I'm just actually getting it here, um, we've called it Owning Our Future. Uh, after COVID-19, and this is on our democracycollaborative.org website if anyone wants it. But it's a five-point plan for what we call U.S. National Economic Reconstruction and Community Transformation. And um, four of the elements are particularly relevant, I think, in the U.K. context. One is um, uh, setting up mechanisms to preserve local economies and community economies by blocking financial extraction and consolidation. What do I mean by that? Millions upon millions of SMEs and small businesses in particular have been shuttered in the United States now for months. Country's starting to open up. Many of these are going to not come back. The estimates that are coming out in some studies are 30 to 40% of shuttered small businesses will not return to business. So, and these are millions of jobs all over the country. So. Uh, and the danger is that in the United States, I don't know the UK situation, may well be similar. There is, the estimate is over $2 trillion, with a T, $2 trillion of what some have called vulture capital sitting on the sidelines, just waiting to come in and scoop up local economies at pennies on the dollar. So we need mechanisms to block that extraction, or else we're going to have, instead of a a really localized and democratic recovery, um, you know, we're going to have a kind of Amazon recovery. By the way, I don't know, I, I know you're on Twitter. I don't know if you've followed on Twitter in the last week. There's been some studies that project Jeff Bezos' wealth. If it continues to grow at the rate it's been going, if you project it out, by 2026, we will have the first trillionaire in the world. Trillionaire. It's hard to get your mind around that. The gross yeah. domestic product of the entire United States is only $20 trillion. <laughs> so one is blocking local extraction. And we've come up with ideas like a, uh, a municipal holding company that can uh, buy local businesses, return them to health, and then return them to the economy, uh, perhaps in new ownership patterns and the like. That's one idea. But by, by the way, just 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 I mean, we 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 have a we we have a report coming out next week which looks at sort of fiscal stimulus for community and the role of community banks and so on. We're very much on on this page. But what's really interesting is some you know establishment figures on the right are starting to advocate for the state taking up equity stakes in business so they can weather weather this storm. You know, there is a a mainstream discussion to be had here. Well, that's exactly right. What's what's very interesting with this pandemic crisis um, is. Ideas that were not, you could not even discuss in public a few months in October are now being taken up and becoming the common sense. You know, the, yeah. the, our central bank, the Federal Reserve, just created $2 trillion out of nothing on a computer, basically, through modern monetary theory, and they're going to create trillions more. 
I, I was um, going to say exactly the same thing here. You know, monetization of government debt told you couldn't do that. Once that, that's the end of you in the, in, in the global economy. We've all just done it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there's a, a billionaire in America um, here who owns one of our big basketball, a, a basketball team, professional team. Uh, his name's Mark Cuban. He's also on TV. And he is not uh, the world's most progressive person, as you can imagine. And uh, he's quoted uh, a week or two ago saying, you know, I, I understand if the U.S. government needs to bail out the airline industry, but if we're going to bail them out, we need to take an equity stake in the company on behalf of the American people. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of um, private equity for the people or vulture capitalism for the people sort of thing. <laughs> I know it's, uh, yeah, we're kind of, yeah, it's fine to socialize the economy. You know, what the heck? So, it's <laughs> you know, in the leveling up conversation that the Tories are doing, you know, I mean, these ideas are creeping out. The issue is uh, there are interventions that are going to come, right? Because if not, this whole neoliberal capitalism is going to go down the drain. So there will be interventions and even from conservative parties. Uh, but the question is kind of intervention to what ends. And uh, I would say certainly uh, in Washington, D.C. or in Whitehall, um, they are not going to be, they do not have the perspective uh, for the rebuilding of local economies. That resides in our communities, in the United States, in our cities, like Cleveland, in our states like Ohio. So the decisions need to be localized. But there will be these interventions in our job, and there's going to be a lot of money flowing in the United States. Literally trillions of dollars are going to start to move through the system. And our job is to, in this country, is to organize, mobilize communities, organize political discourse, media, and so forth, to say, we don't want that money that's flowing through the system to just go to those who are going to centralize the economy evermore. We've got to move into these new approaches. We've got to rescue our small businesses. We've got to not just do uh, bailouts, but buyouts if we're going to rescue companies. Uh, we need to, uh, there, there's a phrase going through the United States now because of the racial, racialized justice system, it's called defund the police. And it's not a very good uh, slogan because it makes people think we're abolishing the police. That's not it, it's a different kind of policing and so forth. But there could be a good, in the US at least, there could be a good argument to make to defund economic development. You know, because it is predicated on all the wrong assumptions and it is leading to ever greater inequality. So. That's the third point in our plank, is to take community wealth building, which has been a kind of alternative model and some interesting initiatives and articles and books, and actually turn it into the overarching economic develop, development paradigm for cities and states all over the country. So the time is, what, what we're called upon is real levels of ambition beyond anything we've even thought of before. And bringing together um, a public, private, individual, charitable capital, um, if you like, in some more concerted effort, um, as well as you describe it, the Eds and Med sort of anchor institution style purchasing that you can build a, a sustainable business ecosystem 
uh, around. But if you could do it at a more systemic, at-scale level, this could really shift the needle over, over time. Uh, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, it's, and you, uh, capital in this is essential because whoever owns and controls capital ultimately controls the system and the economy. Um, and of course, we all know the conversation, the 1%, the 99% and all that. But there are many forms of alternative capital, whether it's uh, you know, progressive business and investment, the endowments and investment portfolios of health institutions, uh, universities, cultural institutions, uh, the reserves of uh, city governments all over the country, the uh, pension funds of public employees. I mean, there are lots of forms of capital that could be mobilized for a reconstruction of our economy that takes in a very different way than the one that it's most likely to go into, which is ever greater concentration. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're interested as well, as you know, with, with um, universal basic income in this context, actually, because it, it also brings into the equation sort of individual resilience and capital beyond the wage system. And, and the thing critically it might do is buy people a bit of time and space to explore these um, different types of economic and community relationships. That might be a bit utopian. I hope it's, I hope it's not. But do, do you see something of that sort of individualized measure as being a corollary of this sort of movement or do you see that as a distinctive and different conversation no no i think it's uh, you know we're looking at a very layered and comprehensive response and i think ubi universal basic income is definitely part of that i, I would say what intrigues me most about ubi is can it move um uh into, let's see how to say it, um, you know, um, a flow of income from broadly held capital, if you will, yeah. uh, rather than just sort of uh, income support. And, you know, uh, so there aren't good examples, but an example, and it has a problem with it because it's very extractive environmentally. And so stipulating that, in the United States, there's something called the Alaska Permanent Fund that I know you've heard of. And it is, you know, essentially that Alaska is sitting on top of a huge supply of oil and uh, uh, permits have been given to oil companies to extract it, which to say that's problematic is to understand. But the revenues from those leases or contracts go into a fund in Alaska that is held on behalf of all the people of the state so that that capital, that asset in the ground, produces for every man, woman, and child who's a resident of, of Alaska, even if you're uh, two months old, um, checks in a given year of maybe $1,000 each for, you know, so a household could get a four or $5,000 sort of bonus every year based on that shared inheritance. The Norwegian pension fund, you know, is kroner millionaires. There are examples of that. Uh, how could we finance a UBI out of that, which would help shape and, and the planning of capital control? And, and, and then, a, a, you know, a, a question could be then how you use, you know, things like, like a UBI to flow back into this 
democratized economy? You know, how can you encourage people um, to buy from, you know, local food producers, your municipal renewable energy companies that you're, um, that you're talking about? So again, going back to the, the, the flows through democratic institutions as well. And we, I think advocates of UBI need to do a lot more thinking around how this, this, this links intricately and definitively with the community wealth building agenda. Well, you know, um, it's very interesting you said that because right before meeting with you now, I was on a, uh, you know, Zoom kind of call uh, with uh, uh, aldermen, city councillors in the city of Amsterdam. And I was asked to present about some of these ideas, including establishing a holding company to preserve the local SMEs. Uh, but there is also uh, a fellow um, uh, uh, from Barcelona, who works in the social economy there. And he did a presentation about something they're doing in Barcelona that, that could be linked directly to what you're saying, Anthony, that the, the city has issued an app that can be downloaded by everybody in the city, and it's called REC, R-E-C, and I'm not sure what that stands for. But for people who are on a social income, or you know, some kind of income support in Barcelona, um, they download the social income using this app and it turns it into a kind of currency that uh, uh, can be used only at designated small, very small local stores. You can't go to a Walmart and use it. And indeed, if, if you add to your allotment of this currency, you put 10 euros in, additional 10 euros, the city will top it off with an additional euro also. And then in some of the places where you're buying, they give discounts to people who are using this kind of digital currency and app so that your purchasing power is augmented, but it's focused directly on supporting the local small business community. So I, I hadn't thought that at the time, but I could see a UBI program could be linked similarly in a way that would really empower the local business community. Well, I, I was doing a discussion about food policy the other day, and I and I suggested something very very similar to this. Everyone looked at me like I was mad. So it's good to know that it's good to know that somebody's actually trying it out. Um, Ted, I don't know how much longer we could go on for hours. Um, I mean, this has been um, you know an education as well as an inspiration um, uh, as as ever. And sadly, we have um, run out of time. But um, as I mentioned previously, the RSA and Democracy Collaborative are looking forward to continuing to join forces wherever possible in the fight for social, economic, uh, ecological um, justice and some of the issues that we've been we've been discussing today. So look out for, for, for more of that. Meanwhile, um, you'll find links to Ted's work and I'd encourage you to download and read it on, on the RSA's website, of course, the Democracy Collaborative website. Um, you'll also find more information there about our latest um, report, Road to Resilience, which advocates community wealth building and community banks, um, uh, as well as news from our sort of um, growing global fellowship uh, community. We'd love to hear your ideas, the public's ideas, on what is needed to create a just and resilient post-pandemic future. So do get involved in the conversation across social media using the hashtag RSA Bridges. Um, finally, I'd just like to say thank you again to Ted Howard and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.